are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are with us by your spirit. We do believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit still works. The Holy Spirit still moves that the Holy Spirit still convicts, that the Holy Spirit still brings life. And so I pray now, through that Spirit, that you open up our eyes to see the truth of the gospel. You encourage us, that you build us up, that you fill us up. For those here that don't know you, may you save today. And may it all be for the glory of your name. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, So, um, one of the things that... uh, I love doing the most uh, when times present themselves, uh, present themselves is I love to plan vacations. Um, I don't know why I enjoy planning <laughs> vacations, uh, but I've, I've honestly liked to do this. I've enjoyed doing this my, pretty much my whole life. I remember as a kid, probably around the fifth grade, my parents took my brothers and I, I have two younger brothers, I'm the oldest, to Disney World. Um, and Grew up a Disney kid. Uh, I remember the first movie I ever saw in theaters was with my dad. We went and saw The Little Mermaid, which is a great manly flick to go watch with your dad. Um, but I, I just grew up on Disney. That's what we watched in my house. We watched Disney movies. Uh, so the prospect of going to Disney World as a fifth grader with my family was a big deal. It was a big deal. And I remember 
That's a true story. I remember as a fifth grader um, buying the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World 1995, and it's like this thick. And I remember reading pretty much the entire thing. I knew everything about all the restaurants. I knew everything about every hotel. I knew everything about every ride. I would planned out, literally planned out this itinerary for a trip to present to my parents with no thought at all to cost. Uh, it just did not even occur to me as a fifth grader. And I handed them this itinerary and said, here's our trip. Here's, here we go. We're going to do all these things. Um, but I just loved that, that idea of, of just planning vacations. And that's kind of carried over into my adult life. But what if, what if, as a kid then, or as an adult now, I found myself so satisfied with the planning of the vacation that I actually failed to go on the vacation itself? You know, what if I dreamed and fantasized about this massive, uh, unreal trip, planned for it, researched all the restaurants and the attractions, I had it all done on paper, and yet I failed to experience the culmination of my planning, namely the vacation, the point of the planning to begin with. The means of planning a vacation is to be satisfied by the ends of vacationing, Right? But how often do we as human beings mistake the means for the ends rather than see the pleasure of the means as pointers to something far greater, something far more majestic, something far more satisfying than the means could ever produce. And throughout the Gospel of John, in particular, our, our text for today, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, you have the majority of people in this story mistaking the ends for the, the means for the ends. They have filled their bellies with bread, and yet they find their satisfaction in the bread, which is a good thing, but fail to see the culmination of their satisfaction, and that's the bread of life, Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus apart from the resurrection recorded in all four Gospels. And I truly believe it's recorded not only for the magnitude of the miracle, which is, is huge, but for the message it sends to everyone reading it. And the message is simply this, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than all that came before him. Jesus is greater than all that will come after him. But how often we settle for those, the glory of those things that fade, the glory of those things that do not last, the glory of those things that never satisfy us. All of those things are the means. Christ is the ends. So how do we get there? How do we get to that point from our text this morning? The fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, 1 through 15, we're going to unpack this, but John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 is best understood in the context of the entire chapter of John. Jesus actually has a, a monologue, a dialogue really with the Jews after this in the remainder of the chapter that help inform us as to what this miracle actually means. So we're going to look at all of it. But Jesus is just now coming off the beginning of our chapter, off a pretty heated conversation with the religious leaders in John chapter 5 about his authority. And then sometime after this, the text says in verse 1, he heads across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Not, not sure how much time after this is between chapters 5 and chapter 6, but Jesus ends up on the other side of the sea. And as is the case in most, mostly throughout the gospel accounts, a great crowd is following him. 
In verse 2, because they, they're following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Now, at the risk of sounding kind of like a broken record, uh, which I say this every week, but as we're in this series, just remember that sign-based faith in the Gospel of John is not ideal. You know, oftentimes it's seen as superficial, shallow, selfish, wanting Jesus to perform, but bailing on him when it tends to get hard. And as we're going to see, this is no exception. So John is already cluing us in in verse 2 of the direction this, this story is probably going to go. They're following Jesus for something from him. And when things get hard, they're going to leave him. Jesus goes up on a mountain in verse 3 with his disciples. As they're on the mountain, Jesus looks up. He sees this large crowd coming towards them. And he turns to Philip, poor Philip. And he says, hey, where can we buy all these people bread? Now, I don't know why he turns to Philip in this situation. Maybe Philip was just right there hanging out with Jesus. Maybe it's because Philip was from Bethsaida, which is near the place this miracle took place. So maybe he had an inn on the restaurants in Israel and Jerusalem or around that area. But I can almost picture the scene in my mind. Uh, thousands upon thousands of people coming towards Jesus. You know, the text says 5,000, but it specifies 5,000 men. So not counting women and children, the number was probably higher, probably in the 20,000-ish range of people coming towards Jesus. So if we take into account the women and children, we have significantly more than 5,000 people here. The other gospel accounts record that the conversation around food that Jesus has here begins after Jesus has taught the crowd for a little while. So they've heard Jesus teach, they're tired, they're hungry. Philip just happens to be standing here, and Jesus poses the question. I can almost picture Philip uh, kind of chuckling a little. Yeah, I don't know where we can buy these people food. That's a great question. Uh, but then he looks at Jesus and realizes this guy's being serious. He really is asking the question for real. Where do we buy these people food? And verse 6 tells us that this was to test Philip. And perhaps to test his faith, that just as Jesus turned water into wine and healed an official son and as he had, uh, he's about to feed multitudes of people, does Philip actually believe Jesus can feed these people? Well, Philip responds with a completely pragmatic response. Uh, even 200 days wages, 200 denarii, could not even give these people a taste of food. A.K.A. there's no chance we can afford to feed all of these people. There's no chance. Then Andrew shows up, Peter's brother, which is interesting, every time you see Andrew in the Gospels, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. I think there's a sermon for another day there. But Andrew shows up with this kid whose mom probably packed him a light snack to come out and hear Jesus. Five barley loaves and two fish. John's the only Gospel writer to record the kind of bread this kid brings. But barley bread was considered the poor man's bread in ancient Israel. Uh, Pliny the Elder, he was a, a, a writer around this time, a Roman writer. He called barley bread, he said, barley bread is fit for beasts. So it was, it was very low. If you're eating barley bread, you're probably from a lower income family. You probably have a lower socioeconomic class. And when we think about loaves, this is not like what Logan made in her house yesterday, this huge loaf of sourdough bread. And we're thinking like small, little, wafer-like Pieces of barley and pickled fish, all right? It's a, it's a snack. It's not a meal. It's like a side dish. And so that's what we have here. Something extremely small. 
But Andrew brings this little bit of food, and Jesus has all the people sit down in verse 10, so they take a seat. Jesus takes the bread, he thanks God for it, probably has a good Jewish prayer that sounds something like this, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. It was a good Jewish prayer around that time you would pray before eating. So he starts giving it out, fish out to everybody in attendance. Every single person eats until they can no longer eat anymore. And the amount of food gathered up, the, the leftovers, comes to about 12 baskets. So these full-bellied, satisfied, and happy people eat, just ate some good bread and some good fish. They're really happy with Jesus. And so in verse 14, they say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They try to seize him, literally. They try to take him by force to make him king, to go into Rome and overthrow the government and set up the kingdom of Israel again. Jesus gets away, slips away, goes back to the mountain for some alone time. And that's the miracle. Amazing miracle. I mean, Jesus just fed 5,000 plus people with a little bit of bread and two fish. This is a miracle that even non-Christians are familiar with, you know, and they find themselves even in situations like, I hope we can multiply the bread and the fish. You know, it's just a kind of an off, off, you know, comments that we make sometimes, even non-Christians make in reference to this miracle. But what is this miracle telling us about Jesus as we've looked at every single week? And what does this miracle tell us about our response to Jesus in light of who he is? So that's what we're going to unpack the rest of our time. A lot of notes today. So I encourage you, if you've got a pen, grab it. I encourage you to write stuff down. Go back and look at it later. But what does this miracle teach us about Christ? Well, first, first thing, this miracle teaches us that Jesus is the true manna from heaven. That Jesus is the true manna from heaven. We skipped over a verse uh, here in our text that's actually extremely crucial to understanding our text. It seems kind of like a throwaway verse, but look at verse 4. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. The Passover, second Passover mentioned in the Gospel of John. The reason John mentions it is probably less chronological, more theological in nature. If you think back to the first time Passover is mentioned, it's, it's in John chapter 2, uh, right after Jesus flips a bunch of tables and, and calls himself the true temple of God, which is not something you want to say in the temple as you're flipping tables over. And this Passover is mentioned in the context of giving people bread and then calling himself the true bread of heaven. So what Jesus is doing is he's taking these Old Testament pictures, these Old Testament images, these means, and he's bringing them to their proper end in himself. You remember back in Exodus 16, the people of Israel had just had this massive, miraculous, literally miraculous deliverance from Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They'd seen bitter water made sweet simply by throwing a log into the water. And even after all these miracles in Exodus chapter 16, literally a month and a half into their journey towards the promised land, they are whining about not having bread. Oh, that God would have just killed us in Egypt. You know, I just, I just pictured, oh, we were so much better there. At least if he would have struck us down, our bellies would have been full. But even in the midst of their complaining, even in spite of their complaining, God gives them bread. 
in a way that they know it's only from the Lord. He literally rains down this flake-like substance every single night. And the people wake up in the morning and they gather it enough for the day to make into manna, bread. Provision in spite of what the people deserved, right? Now you have 1,400 years later, Jesus here, these crowds coming up to him in this miracle in John 6, literally following him, following him because they want something from him. As Jesus feeds them supernaturally in spite of themselves, it's the same thing happening. God providing in spite of what the people deserved. And that shows us one thing the manna from heaven, Christ, the bread of life, shows us is that he grants grace in spite of us. That God grants grace in spite of us. I mean, it's the gospel, right? It's the good news. We deserve nothing but God's wrath for our sin, yet Jesus himself chooses to bestow his provision and favor upon us when we are completely undeserving. Tim Keller says this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Just as God provides grace and provision in manna to an undeserving people in the Old Testament, so everything good we have to enjoy in our lives now is a gift of his provision and grace towards us in Jesus Christ, in spite of us. And then secondly, Jesus goes on to explain, ultimately, that he's the true manna from heaven and that he provides eternal satisfaction, not temporal gratification. He provides eternal satisfaction, not temporal gratification. After this miracle, Jesus just kind of casually walks on some water, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, Not a big deal, just walking on some water. Um, But he explains the meaning of the miracle here in 6, 1 through 15 in the latter part of John chapter 6. Numerous places in the remainder of this chapter, if you were to read on, Jesus talks about the manna that that Moses provided left the people hungry again. They had to eat again. They had to go out of their tents and gather it in the, the next morning. But for those that come and feast on Christ, the bread of life, they'll never be hungry again. Look at verse 35, 35 of chapter 6. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's kind of along the same lines that Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, hey, I'm the living water. You're looking for temporal water. I'm the living water. Drink of me. You'll never thirst again. It's the same thing. The manna in the wilderness was a means to the end who is Christ. But how often do we in this room, how often do we pursue and settle for short-term pleasures in place of long-term satisfaction? And I'm not just talking about sin, all right? That's that's one category we'll get into in a second. But I'm talking about good pleasures as well. Things like a good meal, good drink, time with family, all those times in creation and nature, all those things are intended to point us to the end, which is Jesus, the giver of those things. Not the gift. Praise the Lord for the gift, but praise the Lord for the gift, (laughs) right? But yes, in thinking about sin, on the other hand, sin, by definition, is trading long-term satisfaction for short-term pleasure. 
Not believing that our satisfaction is ultimately in Christ and looking for it in other places. Every sinful action we take, at its, we take is at its heart a choice not to believe in the promises of an all-satisfying God. To play with mud pies in a slum, we quoted a few weeks ago, C.S. Lewis said, then take advantage of an, a holiday at sea. We trade relational intimacy with the creator of all things. Creator of all things. We trade relational intimacy for temporal relationships in this world that even in the best situations come up short and are rife with struggle and strife. We trade the sexual ethic clearly laid out in the scriptures that honors God's character for short-term pleasures that leave us feeling worse when we finish than when we began. We trade honoring God when it comes to our finances and money, choosing not to cut corners, keeping our business relations above board. We trade all of those things for worldly comfort and ease for another buck when, when all-satisfying Christ, when the all-satisfying Christ is offered to us. We live in a world seeking instant gratification, instant gratification over long-term satisfaction. And it's so easy for us, myself included, to fall into these trappings. Christianity is not a sprint. Christianity is a marathon. It's full of highs and lows. Eugene Peterson says it best when he says that following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. It's keeping our eyes fixed on Christ and Christ alone to satisfy our souls, for he is the only one who can. Manna is the means, Christ is the ends. So Jesus is the true manna from heaven, and he is the true satisfaction for our hungry souls. And then second, Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. Again, within the context of Passover, it's not hard to, to see the similarities between this miracle and Moses. In fact, if you were to Take John 6 here and line it up with Numbers chapter 11. There are so many similarities between those two chapters. Numbers 11, the people of Israel are complaining about not having meat to eat. Moses asks, where can I find meat to feed all these people? Same question in verse 5, where Jesus turns to Philip and says, where can we find bread to feed all these people? In the two accounts, there's a massive disproportion between the need of the people and the, the supplies that we have. Both texts speak of manna. Both texts, the people grumble and complain. On and on we can go. Two similarities, or very, very, a lot of similarities between these two texts. And the people in John 6 see Jesus as a Moses-type figure. That's why they say, verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. Why don't you turn there? Let's actually put your finger in John 6. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, fifth book of the Bible. So flip to the, whatever way that is, the left. You're flipping to the right, but you're really moving left. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18. God is speaking to Moses when he says this. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded. So anytime you see in the New Testament this reference to the prophet, 
That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18. It's this prophet who would be filled with the words of the Lord to give to the people. But the prophet, that title, the prophet, although Jesus is that prophet, is vastly insufficient to describe Jesus. From our text alone, there are three ways, three ways Jesus is superior to Moses. He's not like Moses. He is superior to Moses. And there's three ways from our text he's superior. First, Jesus possesses greater compassion than Moses. Jesus possesses greater compassion than Moses. In Mark's account of of the feeding of the 5,000, the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6, he tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. Numbers chapter 11, the text we want to line up with John chapter 6. It explicitly says that when the people grumbled to Moses, this was his response. He says, God, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? It's not a very compassionate response. Frustration marked Moses. Compassion marks Christ. The compassion of Christ, uh, it, it overflows with empathy. I mean, he looks at these thousands of people. He knows what it's like to be tired. Christ knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to live among an oppressed people. I think about what's going on in Ukraine right now as I I mean, I read the Wall Street Journal and there's so many images of, of pregnant mothers being carted out and parents touching the faces of their kids who died. And it's just, it's just heart-wrenching. I think about all the devastation. And I think about the oppression and the pain and the death. Jesus Christ understands that. He understands living in a country overtaken by oppressors living among a people in fear and subjection. He possesses that empathy and that compassion. You know, we may find ourselves in this room in situations without solutions, feeling like we are drowning in anxiety and stress in our own lives, or maybe even when we look at the state of the world. But just as our text says, just as our text says, Jesus knows what he will do. He asked Philip, where are we going to find bread? Knowing he's testing him, but he knows what he's going to do. Jesus is not overwhelmed by the unknowns of your life, the obstacles that you see no remedy for. He knows. He knows. And he also knows what he's going to do. Because Christ is your shepherd, Christian. He will take you in the paths of righteousness and goodness for his name's sake. He will take you no place that he has not already gone before. And Jesus is able to have compassion on these lost sheep and on us because he has dwelt among us. He knows his sheep. He smells like his sheep. For he is the shepherd. Instead of finding annoyance at our frailties and our shortcomings, Jesus Christ, his eyes are filled with kindness. He is our great high priest, made human like us in every respect, yet without sin. He knows our plight. He knows our situation. He knows how weak we are and how frail we are, and he has compassion on us in our weaknesses and frailties. He doesn't wait for us to get strong. He carries us when we're weak. 
Jesus is full of compassion, better, greater than Moses. Number two, Jesus also speaks a better word than Moses. He speaks a better word than Moses. Look at verse 63 of John chapter 6. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and peace come through Jesus Christ. The law, the commands of God, particularly the first five books of the Bible, the law was given by God through Moses. And Paul tells us in Romans 7 that the law is not bad. The law is actually good. But what the law does is it exposes, it awakens our awareness of how sinful we are. It's not that the law is bad. It's that we are bad. The law serves as a mirror condemning us in our sin. When we read it, we look at it, we go, there's no way. I can't live up to this. Leaves us exposed in our shortcomings. The law provides no remedy for those shortcomings. But the words of Christ do. Christ exposes us much like the law. But the major difference is he also offers a remedy that Moses could not offer. He offers us permanent atonement and life. The law brings death and Christ brings life. Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. Which leads to the third and last way. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus provides eternal life. Jesus provides eternal life. Look at verses 47 to 51. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is the bread of life. All Moses could offer was manna. They didn't even come from him. Came from the Father. And this manna would spoil after 24 hours and have to be replaced with more manna. But Jesus, the bread of life, offers us himself. The bread of life does not spoil or go bad. The bread of life does not require us to work to gather it on our own. The bread of life will never leave us hungry again. The bread of life is sufficient, not just for 5,000 plus people, but sufficient for the entire world. Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses was a means. Christ is the ends. So not only is Jesus greater than manna and Moses, but he's also greater. Third, he is greater in his kingship because he is our servant king. Jesus is our servant king. Again, we're in Passover season here. We can't lose sight. We are in Passover season in John chapter 6. The nationalistic zeal of Israel would have been through the roof. All right? They are celebrating their history, their nationalism. This might help explain why they try to kidnap Jesus to force him into kingship. They're thinking about kings. They're thinking about kingdoms here. They had their thoughts on what a king should be. They had their thoughts on what a king should act like, and it looked a lot like one they'd crafted according to their own desires and their own purposes. But Jesus doesn't play those games. 
Jesus doesn't submit to our whims or our notions of how a king should act or what a king should do. He doesn't bow the knee or kiss the ring of humanity. He's not at our subject. He doesn't submit to us. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom, his rule, and his people are qualitatively different than any king or kingdom this world has, even the best of kings and kingdoms. So if kings and kingdoms are the means, shadows of King Jesus and his kingdom, what is our king like? What does our text tell us our king is like? Well, first, the heart of our king is generous. The heart of our king is generous. Twelve baskets are left over. Twelve baskets. He didn't feed the people just enough. He fed them more than they could eat. Where the scene ends with exponentially more food left over than where they started. Jesus goes on to say, look at verse 33. He says that the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The world. Anyone who puts their faith in Christ is filled with the life of Christ. As we said a couple of weeks ago, the kingdom of Christ has no geopolitical, racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic boundaries. Our king is generous with what we need for our satisfaction. Namely, he's generous in giving us himself. He's not stingy. God is not a miser, counting up his resources, only giving what we only need in scarcity. But he gives generously to us. Second, the mission of King Jesus is singular. Singular. He had one job to do. He had one job. Not to overthrow the kingdom of Rome. Not to set up an earthly rule and reign by force. That's what the people wanted. But look at verses 38 to 40. Jesus says, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The mission of Jesus was to solely carry out the Father's will all the way to Calvary. And you know what the main task of that mission, according to these verses, was? Verse 39, to not lose you, Christian. You want assurance of your salvation today? You want assurance that you're going to make it through this life? Take assurance in that, that Jesus will not lose anything the Father has given him. He will carry it all the way to the cross, and he will glorify himself and bring us with him in the resurrection. The king will carry you and you're going to make it. You're going to make it to the end because the king has made it to the end and he will not lose you. Third, the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient. Sufficient. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Feasting on Christ, coming to him as the source of life, leaves you not having to look anywhere else for that which satisfies. All of your longings, all the longings inside your soul find their rest in him. Someone I read this last week, they said this, this is beautiful. They said, Jesus himself knew that the way his kingdom would triumph would not be by beating the enemy in siege warfare, but by dying and rising from the dead. He would go to Jerusalem not to wield the spear and bring judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and bear the judgment. 
It's our king. When his body, his, the bread of life, when his body was broken on the cross, it was sufficient to save you. There's nothing else for you to do but rest in the sufficiency of the death of Christ. And then lastly, lastly, the call of Jesus is total. It's total. We follow Jesus with complete abandon. Verses 66 and 67, Christ is just dialogued. Verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? A question's for us too, church. When following Jesus gets hard, when sin is so enticing, when the heat from culture intensifies, when obeying the word is stigmatized with all kinds of labels from the world around us, when churches and individuals are abandoning the scriptures and replacing them with commands to suit their own desires, the question from Christ confronts us, do we want to go away as well? May our response resonate with that of Peter's, Lord, to whom shall we go? You've come, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. When we begin this path of following Christ all the way to Calvary, the road of Calvary, that we walk with him, behind him, towards the kingdom that is to come, the land that is set before us, when we follow him, there's no going back. We have landed on a new shore and we burn the ships. There's no way to leave. There's no way to escape. This is our life and this is our mission now. Our hope is fully and solely placed in Jesus Christ and we follow our King. We go where He leads us. So what does that look like, Emmanuel? As we kind of land the plane, what does it look like to follow our King in this world? Four things, real quick. Four things. One, we pursue that which lasts, not that which fades. We pursue those things that last, not those things that fade. Church, those things around us, uh, those, those around us, those people around us, they see what we are pursuing with our lives. They watch us. They see us. They see what we devote our lives to. They see how we spend our time. They see how we spend our money. They see what brings us joy. They see what brings us pain. They see what causes stress. They see what alleviates restlessness. Even our children, parents, even our children will see and most likely adopt the priorities you set in place for them. What are you pursuing? Is Christ your treasure? If I, were to, if I were to ask those around you, if I were to ask your kids, hey, what is the most important thing of your parents' lives? What is the most important thing? Would they say Jesus? Would they say Christ? We as Christ's people pursue heavenly quests, heavenly pursuits, not those things that die here on the earth. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. May we pursue those things that last, not those things that fade. Number two, we submit to the word of Christ. We respond by submitting to the word of Christ. The words of Christ are life, the text tells us. Life. This world tells us life's to be found in so many places. Your career, your status, your sexuality, your own unique self-expression. On and on, the messaging of the world is come drink from this well, come drink from this well, come drink from this well. So we go and gorge ourselves in these broken wells 
that hold no water. Only Christ satisfies. He is the well that we drink from. He is the feast we take part of. The words of Christ, in the words of Christ, we find the character of Christ. He is life. He is life. Number three, we lay down our lives for the sake of Christ and the good of one another. We lay down our lives for the sake of Christ and the good of one another. We should be marked, church, by the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. A mind and disposition of self-sacrifice for one another's good and the glory of Christ. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ and it's about us. This body, Emmanuel Church, this body should leave nothing on the table when it comes to selflessly, sacrificially loving one another. There should be no needs in this church because we're meeting one another's needs. Loving one another, loving one another should mark us as a people. Our king, rather than rule by force, he assumed his throne through weakness and sacrifice. God forbid we don't follow his example. And then fourth, fourth, we devote ourselves to an undivided mission. We devote ourselves to an undivided mission. The bread of life is available to the world by the will of the Father. So we too take the gospel under the direction and commission of our Father to the ends of the earth. Our mission is singular, to make the glory, richness, and name of Christ known in all the nations. Jesus is greater Jesus is greater. He is worthy of, every, of the praise of every tongue and tribe and nation in this world. So may we, church, may we not rest or stop until we see this come to fruition. We take the mission of Christ, we do go about the mission of Christ, taking the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth for his glory, for his name, for his renown. Amen. Let's pray together. Christ, fix our desires. Our desires are hearts that are so divided, our hearts that crave other things, our hearts that try to find purpose and meaning in so many trivial pursuits. Fix our desires, increase our appetites. May we crave the bread of life. May we crave the fountain of living water. May we not have mud and dirt all over our faces because we've tried to drink from broken cisterns that hold no water. We trust you, O God, that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, that you are making us and molding us and creating us creating us in us even more a desire for your glory, a desire for your fame, a desire for those around us to know you. So Lord, I pray, I pray, oh God, that we, that we pursue and hunger and thirst for the right things, namely Jesus. We trust that you will put those desires in us through the Spirit. So we pray that now, Father. We pray that now in Christ's name, amen.
This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.